Hello, Liz. Hello, Tom. How are you? So we have an embargo on talking about Thanksgiving, but I have a list of topics <laughs> here. Uh, and do you, you don't have any topics? I do not. I'm dying to hear what you've come up with. Okay. Well, we should probably start by some promotional discussion associated with this forensics book, because since oh. our last recording, I've actually narrowed down my ideas on a chapter, and I've started uh, writing it and piecing together the software components for my chapter. Are you actually writing a chapter for this forensics book? You know, I think I'm going to. I wasn't planning on it. Um, I've edited, you know, a few books now, and it's, I don't want to say it's easy, but it really is simpler to be kind of the background person and just write an intro, a conclusion, you know, and then do all the actual editing of the chapters. But this, you know, forensic science and technology is such um, a topic that's kind of close to my heart. I thought, why would I not write a chapter for this book? So mm. I think I'm going to, and I've got, a, you know, a couple of potential um, ideas in the hopper, but to be determined. But I really liked your idea. It sounded super interesting. And like I wrote, in my email to you, I, I don't know exactly how this would work, but if you want to hash it out for a minute or two, I'm sure, willing to sure. listen. So, historically, Noble Ape has simulated a rich, uh, I don't know, ch chain of islands environment with these ape-like creatures that wander over uh, the environment and, you know, interact with each other and eat and sleep and what have you. About um, probably four years ago now, I gave a talk at SRI, Stanford Research Institute in um, mm. Menlo Park, and the fellow who hosted that said, you've got to help me write a grant proposal, which means I had to write a grant proposal, uh, <laughs> associated with Noble 8, because obviously, you know, there's the poten massive potential. Folks who have a biotafeed present can go back and listen to the SRI talk and the discussion around that, in particular the stunned questioning associated with how I didn't have any funding and yet continued to develop Noble 8. That was associated <laughs> with so that was associated with things like Hurricane Katrina, like disaster management situations, in particular okay. looking at the role that independent radicals or at least radical agents within an environment could shape um, panicking crowds and these kind of things. Oh, so it was to cool. look at the kind of normative group and then radical individuals to see how they could impact the group and sway things. It's a counterpoint to traditional hierarchical models that historically didn't do particularly well in this kind of disaster management. So I wrote the, you know, the grant proposal for this and didn't get the grant. But I've uh, always. Who was it submitted to? Just um, out of curiosity. Uh, some dodgy US government agency that I don't in any way want to be affiliated <laughs> with, but the kind of agency that would uh -huh. be giving money to Stanford Research International. You don't need to, you know, a, a uh -huh. list of possible three or four government departments, uh, any of the above. It wasn't Homeland Security, thankfully. Department uh, of Defense? I'm not mentioning any other names. Okay. I, I don't know. Honestly, it was, it was one of these underneath organizations mm. and who knows where it actually went but i didn't get the grant i'm mm, sure halliburton it. got it instead um <laughs> and uh i just went on my merry way but it's, it's always interested me this notion that noble ape is really just tongue-in-cheek about humans right you know it is mm. about humans those humans um so from mm. that i've often wondered what i needed to change in noble ape to actually make it a simulation about humans Mm -hmm. And what's more interesting in terms of the foibles of humanity than things like murder and high crime? And right. I thought, well, this might be an interesting. So there are two, there are two aspects that I'm looking at here. The first is associated with random walks through a possible set of solutions. And here we're talking about people who... The three murders that I was looking at in California, oh. one of them is with a serial killer, and the other two are really illustrated as kind of crimes of passion in terms of how they were written up. Uh -huh. But the thing that interests me is this notion of, firstly, a multiplicity of solutions in terms of... um you know, the possibilities of these individuals' actions, but also the strong narrative component. Through Noble Ape is yes. this idea of narrative, and the narrative is typically used to describe the ape's behaviour to an external observer, but I'm interested in the narrative also being programmatic. 
So mm-hmm. there are these two competing ideas. One is associated with random walk. One is associated with competing narratives, be it witness testimony and or you know testimony of the accused. And mm-hmm. that creates an interesting tapestry for a simulation like No Black to exist. And now, obviously, I've got to do things like change the environment and also change some of the aspects of the Noble Apes to make them more like humans. And that's where mm-hmm. it's particularly interesting. That's where the software programming part comes. So I started the programming effort to that light. I started last night, and I'm in parallel documenting this. And on February 2nd, I'm giving a mm-hmm. talk at Netflix on my chapter. So I've given myself basically oh. two months to generate the data and then time to talk at Netflix. I'm not sure when the chapter's actually due. Uh, neither am I. You mean you're <laughs> going to talk at Netflix on this chapter that yes, you're currently writing? Yes. Oh, see, that's great. You've given yourself a deadline. Now yes. you have to do it. <laughs> no, I, people have already <laughs> that's booked. That's good. No, people are already coming. Like, it's a big thing now. So, yes. Oh, wow. No, I know, how to, I know how to do these things, Liz. I know how to frame pressure in these circumstances. So that's great. I don't want to and give... it's, it's good press for my book, too, so thank you. Yeah, no, your your book is actually in the meetup invite, so I can forward that on to you as well. Fantastic. Um, but oh, yeah, that's... You, you never know with the copious quantities of building funds, you might actually be able to come and attend the talk. Exactly. Right. <laughs> February, February in California, February that sounds 2nd. really nice. Yeah. Okay. Slightly less snow than where you are currently. Yes, exactly. I'll pencil it in. But that's a great, I love doing that too, because then you're committed to it. People yeah. are coming. They want to hear you say something interesting. So you've got. But if the chapter isn't quite finished by the time you give the talk, you can actually yeah. use the talk as motivation to actually get the chapter finished as well. I think the origin of. Totally. Yeah, the origin of mine chapter, I think, was. Pretty well. One of the ones that I wrote with you, either Mind or Design, was Mm -hmm. like that. I basically queued up a talk, did as much as possible in chapter, and the talk caused me to completely rewrite the chapter. So that's my anticipation here, that actually interacting with an audience is kind of like a mini peer review session. Yeah. And you get to see those dynamics as well. So, yeah, it's all lining up quite nicely in that light. I just need to do the copious quantity of software, you know, coding and... uh, running for how many days in order to test these uh, hypotheses out. The other thing I probably should do is, um, and this is a question that I have for you, the the, the field of forensic science, Mm -hmm. in terms of getting myself just coherent enough to actually be able to be in such a book, can you recommend books on the field Mm -hmm. or anything like that that I could kind of deep dive into currently? Yeah, I can. Um... I don't have my Kindle right here, but when I first started getting into this, I read all the sort of primers and um, there's even a book. I don't know if you know the ser- the book series called A Very Short Introduction to X. Mm-hmm. Do you know that book series? So they have, they might have forensic science. I read the forensic psychology one, mm-hmm. which is interesting. And then um, I read forensic science for writers, which was more about like how to write about crime and mystery and that kind of stuff. Mm. But yeah, I can get you a list of um, some of the books I read and maybe even more helpful were some of the contemporary articles. So I got really interested in the Innocence Project. You know what that is? Certainly. Yeah, the DNA, you know, people have been convicted for 30 years and dying of cancer and then mysteriously get released. Exactly. The the racial side of the Innocence Project as well, I think, is just really, really disturbing too. It is really disturbing. Um, One book that comes to mind, I actually tried to get the two authors of it to write for my book. It's called Genetic Justice. Mm. There's basically a, a, a science writer and then somebody who does forensic stuff for the government. Mm-hmm. And I reached out to both of them. I didn't hear back from her. And he said, I'm working on, you know, way different stuff now. So, no, I can't contribute. But that book, Genetic Justice, it's dense. It's really dense. It's just tons of, like, data and statistics and information Um, But I learned more from that book than any other resource in forensic science. But it is uh, focused on the Innocence Project Mm. and how, you know, everybody assumes that DNA evidence is 100% sure and 100% decisive and all the reasons why it's not. And so it's really informative and it's really timely, I think, too. So that's a good one. But I can certainly... um, 
go back in my files and get you a few more. Cool. Thank you, Liz. That would be much appreciated. Mm -hmm. So I have a few topics here this evening, and they fit into the broad view that we are recording a kind of philosophy plus podcast, which may (laughs) or may not be the case. So these questions may date themselves very quickly. (laughs) When we were last talking, I mentioned a book associated with the correspondence of early folks in quantum mechanics, and I thought that I had found this book. And went out and purchased it, and it arrived. And I realised, actually, that there was a second book, that I'd read these two books in close succession. Uh. And the second book was actually the book that I was looking for. However, I had put all... For the past... I mean, this was uh, the late 90s. So since the late 90s, I'd always remembered this one book cover in the context of this, you know, letters associated with Kant. And Uh I had done this so much that I had completely forgotten what the other book looked like, anything close to a title of the other book. So I've had this strange experience this week associated with my, not necessarily my deteriorating mind, but (laughs) the fact that my mind, as is a favourite topic when I chat with Heron, has found a completely different thing and then developed this story associated with this thing to the point where... I don't even yeah. really feel comfortable talking about the Kantian origins, although there are other there are other books, and I have found um, a number of uh, web pages, including a couple of Wikipedia references, that do mm. indicate what I said was the case. But without oh, okay. this book in my hand, I'm starting to feel that my mind is not a, a good reference point to make these kind of claims. Oh, you're talking like somebody who has early stages of dementia, but you're too young for that, Tom. Yeah, no, my wife, I keep making these points to my wife, and she keeps saying, and I have, I have solid dementia on both sides of my family, so I, I keep making the claims Uh-oh. that my wife points out to me that what I associate with mental frailty is just like normal stuff for everyday people, and the fact that I make <laughs> such a thing out of this deteriorating mind oh, is no. only indicative of me and not indicative of the fact that I do have early onset dementia, but our listeners <laughs> can decide for themselves. So, <laughs> and I just I, reified that for you. I think I, your wife is right. We all have those so dementia moments. The thing that interests me through this is a discussion that we've had on both our prior recordings associated with applied philosophy. So mm-hmm. when you look at models of the mind in philosophy or discussion associated with, you know, what the mind is composed of, mm-hmm. it's always a bright, crisp, on the top of its game, not sleep deprived in any way mind example, which is so pure in its form as to be almost unintelligible for, you know, those of us with garden variety minds. <laughs> Mm-hmm. In terms of philosophy, in terms of the philosophy of mind, what philosophers gel with you associated with a slightly deteriorated, slightly less perfect view of the mind? Hmm. Well, that that's kind of a loaded question, because you're asking me to adopt your <laughs> view of the mind. No, no, I'm just saying, I'm just saying the color that I've cast in this thing does not in any way, but I guess my view is that the mind is a pinnacle in philosophy. Uh-huh. is described with a lot of ideas that seem to be describing a perf- like almost a, the form of the mind, the platonic form of the yes. mind. Yes. Oh, yeah. Versus no what, what us poor homo sapiens kind of deal with on a day-to-day basis. Are there any philosophers yeah. that you've read that give a more organic view of the mind? Well, well let me answer that in two ways. The direct answer is John Searle a professor emeritus of philosophy at CU Berkeley who espouses his biological naturalism is what he calls it. And this is just the idea that consciousness is a biological phenomenon. Consciousness and the mind are hosted by a biological brain. Um, The human being performs consciousness or supports consciousness just like a green plant supports um photosynthesis so you know he he gives all these sorts of examples and analogies and saying this stuff in the 90s and the early 2000s although to the non-philosopher you know this sounds really sort of 
prosaic. It's like, yeah, no, no kidding. <laughs> no kidding. Consciousness is a biological phenomenon. But he is one of the first, certainly one of the first mainstream or popular big to do philosophers who's saying this, because you're right that certainly in mainstream analytic philosophy of mind, philosophers are talking about the mind in this platonic, perfect, pristine form and not getting into all the messy stuff that psychology gets into. And what I would say is that um, to answer your question, I, I never thought of it in terms of like a diminished mind or an imperfect mind or something like that. But I always thought that contemporary analytic philosophy of mind is missing the boat in looking at how the mind is now, meaning like a 21st century regular human mind. And if you don't look at the evolutionary history of how the human mind developed, then you run into all these sorts of puzzles of like, why do we see colors? Why do we feel feelings? You know, why, why do we have qualia? You know, the, the David Chalmers question, why did, why do all the, all this stuff, why does it exist? Why do we experience it? Because you're not at all considering how the human mind has developed over time. And that's really, really missing from contemporary analytic philosophy of mind. So the, the broader, more general way of answering your question is that I was always drawn to more, you know, evolutionary psychology views of the mind or cognitive science that were evolutionarily informed views of the mind. So you're looking at, oh, the human mind is sort of like the mind of a dog and a cat in all these ways. And then it's different in these few very specific, very much more contemporary, really, really narrow specific ways. Does that make sense? Certainly. Certainly. It is interesting because when you start looking for applied philosophy, I mean, I'm a big fan of doing this with metaphysics, particularly in computer simulations, you start to realize that philosophy is about giving you almost a golden rule associated with the thing that mm -hmm. you're looking to explore. And then you have to either, you know, using existing biological principles or, you know, psychology. Oftentimes psychology has its own equivalence to this but in terms of kind of small golden rules kind of scattered through and then, you know, attempts to um, liaise with, let's just put it that way, evolutionary biology. But a lot yeah. of the... A lot of the contemporary experiences of the mind in terms of mass information, in terms of instantaneous communication, all these things kind of cut through the evolutionary biological approach and actually indicate mm -hmm. that the mind has these evolutionary aspects, but is now caught in a sense domain, and we'll talk a little bit more about qualia in a minute, I think, because it's particularly interesting, that... Um, Really, our responses may historically have been biologically driven, but now mm -hmm. the biology is firing against things that it's never been a part of previously. I mean, cars mm -hmm. historically have been used as this example, that if you take cars to a culture that does not have generations of vehicle ownership, you mm -hmm. have all these circumstances and all these really strange road accidents that you would never get in cultures where, you know, your parents owned a car and you had experiences from a young child with a car. Um, mm. And you have these curious things now where technology is, is similar to that, except there's been virtually no culture that has had this tradition of, you know, information sharing, of, um, you know, immediate sense contact and, you know, diminishing returns for traditional interactions. So, mm. yeah, there's all this curious stuff that comes through the modern experience, which philosophy is so far on the back foot associated mm. with even, mm -hmm. yeah, this kind of visionary view, and then you have the applied reality. And, you know, I, I certainly in the 60s and 70s, psychology was really coming into its heyday associated with describing, mm -hmm. you know, unrest and social phenomena. But yeah. even now... You know, in the present day, the even the analysis of psychology has to, you know, has to make a series of jumps in order to keep up with, you know, what we see in, in current experience. But I wanted to return mm -hmm. to qualia. Mm -hmm. 
because mm-hmm. qualia for in a simulation terms i've always thought of qualia as a kind of evolution from bertrand russell's logical atomism how would you describe qualia to the the layperson listening in qualia is basically just a fabricated problem that david chalmers made up <laughs> who it is pull that punches loose <laughs> who is making a living in Australia, I might add. He he got really famous with it at um, University of Arizona, but mm. now he's at Australian National University. My alma mater. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, very good school. Well, that's not the way I felt about it, but anyway, continue on, Liz. Sorry, I shouldn't have interrupted you. <laughs> Maybe it's reputation. See, it's all David Chalmers. He brought qualia to Australia... Now it's just, you know... They just thought they were koalas, or that was just a mispronunciation (laughs) of koalas. And they're ah, look at this. Anyway, continue. Well, okay, so, I mean, this is why it is a fabricated problem. And this is, in a nutshell, it's kind of the problem with contemporary approaches to Mm. mind, contemporary analytic philosophy. So he basically asks the question, David Chalmers asks the question, um, okay, if bicycles are physical things and bicycles don't have feelings and they don't experience the world in any sort of sensual way. Bicycles don't smell things. They don't see things. They don't feel things. Um, And if humans are physical things too, then by extension of that argument, we shouldn't um, as physical things experience the world in any sort of sensual, sensual way either. We shouldn't experience the qualities of the world around us, which is, you know, qualities that come in from all the five or six senses. Hmm. And so um, then it's this huge problem, according to him, called the hard problem, which is how can it be that we're this, we're a physical thing, but we experience non-physical sort of experiences like feelings, you know, and he really comes up with this kind of mysterious or mystical uh, answer to his own question. This is why he's called a new Mysterian. And he has some friends in this camp, very few, um, that he answers by saying, well, you know, there's there's this qualia is sort of like a, um, a force in the universe and we're sort of tapping into this force. I mean, I don't even know. I don't even understand it. That's probably not. Okay. So I, I had a slightly more applied view, but this again is also about mapping stuff onto things that I already understand. Qualia mm-hmm. is like an atomic or a quantum of sense data, which is probably far too much Russell in this light. And that it's a description of kind of cognitive or emotional sense data that can be quantized, but I'm probably completely wrong in that definition. I don't think you're wrong. It, mm-hmm. You, you're, That kind of talk is reminding me more of like John Locke. Mm-hmm. Certainly, So yes. Right, sort of like the early British empiricists yeah. um, who talk about um, sense data and simple ideas and compound ideas because they're thinking along the lines of, of where physics was at that age, right? So they're no, thinking I in think terms of like... The, the timing is wrong for Locke with regards to quantized data. Um, I, I mean, I think of Russell because Russell was at a time where they had early, well, early ideas of quantum data. Um, mm-hmm. Locke, yeah, Locke is, again, more... first principles but yeah he talks about um primary and secondary qualities and i thought maybe that's where you were going (laughs) where the the primary qualities are things that exist in space like like dimension or something like that (laughs) secondary qualities are things that only exist in virtue of human sensory capacities (laughs) so red doesn't really exist according to john locke it's a secondary quality that results from this interaction of our visual system yeah. and certain wavelengths of light. Yeah. So that's where I thought you were going, primary, secondary qualities. But I, I don't know. I never thought of qualia in terms of Bertrand Russell, to tell you the truth. Are you familiar, <laughs> I never... with, are you familiar with Russell's logical atomism, though, the notion that uh, we receive quantizable sense data, which are almost like matchsticks, that we're all... There's a pile of matches mm-hmm. in this room, and if someone comes in and looks at the room as well, we will start gathering data from the same pile 
in this interaction. Oh, and the quantization okay. of the data through that. Um, I mean, this was early Noble Ape stuff as well. Um, okay. But it's, um, it's from a chapter I've got in the original manuals of Noble Ape um, associated with you know, Russell's view of sense data and how we absorb and collect sense data, which is a kind of primitive view of the mind as, I don't know, data recorder more than anything. Um, and I guess I oh, meant Qualia, okay. although I'm well aware of the mysticism component, I guess uh-huh. when I had to gather this information and just absorb it in some way, it seemed to be a lot more akin to a kind of untangible sense data that was being described, particularly associated with the mind, but as you say, emotional mappings and all these kind of aspects as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, it is, it is interesting. Yeah, it's feelings too. I mean, it's really, if you think of it in terms of experience, that's yeah. probably the best way to think of it. So a bicycle or a table doesn't experience its environment in any in any way <laughs> so we yeah. think but human beings and to some extent or lesser extent other animals do have experience of their environment so you feel a certain way you feel cold you feel hot you feel creeped out you feel thirsty all those things are qualia mm. and 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 the reason i find it to be a mistaken idea is again going back to this idea of if you only look at the human mind, if you only consider the human mind in terms of right here and now, 21st century, then it does seem mysterious, right? Like, ha, huh, dinner plates don't experience their um, environment and their physical things, and human beings do, and we're physical things. So there's this conundrum. But if you look at, well, the mind isn't the way it's always been, you know, it's developed from way simpler forms of things, of living organisms that had to read their environment and go towards the light or go towards the food or stay away from danger. That's the only reason that we're here having this conversation, right? Mm. Because our ancestors were able to make those choices for whatever reason. And that led to human beings. So in my opinion, the hard problem or this problem of qualia is a stupid problem because all all it's doing is kind of artificially separating Here's yeah. an animal, you know, yeah. that should be feeling, sensing, uh, surviving. It has natural survival instincts. And, oh, but we're physical things. You know, it's it's making humans almost like robots. Totally. Like, yeah. well, we're physical things. Why do we experience the world? Well, if we didn't, we wouldn't be here, you know? Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, I, I call it ANU as opposed to the Australian National University. But, yeah, only embracing the <laughs> stupid problems is kind of like ANU's... <laughs> motto associated although truth truth be told come here work on stupid problems before yeah exactly truth be told actually since i was at anu there have been a few intellectual revolutions that have occurred there particularly in philosophy but none of which i really have any affiliation or positive things to say about but it is strange that anu is considered because when i was there there were certainly like world experts that were published in you know oxford university press and all that other kind of gumph but when mm-hmm. you actually interacted with them, they were so uninspiring as to, yeah. although, you know, it is, it is very curious. So, yeah. Through, it, it is interesting, this notion of moving from bicycles to humans. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, why not put kittens in between bicycles and humans or, you know, have at least one additional point in your description? And then mysteriously, yeah. this thing, as you say, dissolves almost immediately. Well, yeah, exactly. And I mean, this is what this is sort of the the crux of biosemiotics, that subfield of biology that I worked in for a while, or I guess still do. Um, That's the crux of it is, you know, it's it's not that it's not mysterious and it's not fascinating how we got from, you know, physical things that aren't minded, that don't have consciousness, to physical things like humans that do have consciousness. It's not that it's not a fascinating problem, but it is artificial to separate the two and say, well, human beings are physical things just like basketballs. Well, no, we're not. You know, we're, we're composed of completely different kind of stuff and that's why both these examples they're both human created things a bicycle and a basketball is not the same (laughs) thing as a tree or a rock i mean it is is beautiful that 
these kind of idiosyncrasies are overlooked in the examples as well. Right. Yeah, right. But if you use a tree, that gets tricky, of course. A oh, rock, of course, because there are right? so many more similarities between us and a tree and then a bicycle. So. Right, exactly. Yeah. But that's kind of the crux of it is, well, we're physical things, so why aren't we, you know, dumb as dirt? And, like, really, if you can make your philosophy career on that, great. You know, go right ahead. Well, but you can do it today and you quite successfully. So. Apparently. But so. it's totally, you know, it's just misguided. So my whole philosophy career was like, well, like, like, let's look at what the biologists are saying. Let's look at what evolutionary psychologists are saying. Because it is a huge mystery. Where did consciousness come from? Where did mindedness come from? But if you're not really willing to look at the natural world and where it really has come from, you're never going to answer that question, you know? So changing topics almost completely. One thing, <laughs> that we, <laughs> one thing that we haven't talked about that is, uh, I didn't, I took a double major in philosophy when I did my arts degree. I did one, which I think I probably did a semester's worth of political science in first okay. year because I had to. But everything else I did was philosophy mm-hmm. um, in, in my arts degree. And I didn't, through that period, take any ethics-related mm-hmm. courses. Mm-hmm. So wow. I know very yeah. little about philosophical ethics. But people do come to me periodically. In fact, it's one of the few times that people approach me knowing that I have this philosophy degree that's highly applicable in most of my day-to-day life. Uh, but people will come and see me about ethical or ask me at that least That wasn't questions. sarcastic, was it? Oh, believe me. I mean, the ability... I, I use sophistry frequently in long meetings. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might use logic if you're doing any programming, right? No, it's all sophistry. It's sophistry all the way down. Oh, but moving okay. on from that. So with <laughs> ethics strikes me as being an area that people have a certain degree of just general fascination. And, and it relates probably very similar to the fact that, you know, we, we haven't, when I started, well, actually well prior to studying philosophy, but if you'd asked me at 14 or 15 to name a few philosophers, um, Bob Dylan, John Lennon, <laughs> these kind of names would come to mind. And I think the same is true with ethics, that people in the general public would look at ethics as being something distinctly different to the way in which it's framed in philosophy. But mm. th- through through recent weeks, and we can move past this individual if this is not a topic that you want to delve into, I've been following the headlines associated with Bill Cosby. And oh, the thing yeah. that strikes me oh, through God. that is that there are a number of ethical conundrums that the media is completely avoiding per usual. But when people come and talk to me about ethics in a broader sense... The notion of ethics in the face of capitalism, which I think is an interesting part of the Cosby story, is really very curious and something that I have trouble just within my own experience, um, Mm -hmm. you know, drawing distinct parallels. Because I guess people who haven't studied ethics would like to see almost a kind of Confucian-like element where you just have a lot of wise stories that you can give to people in these circumstances and they can kind of take them away and apply them. Whereas my understanding of ethics and philosophy is it's more associated with uh, approaches of dealing with kind of strange and, you know, somewhat dirty situations, which the Cosby stuff falls into perfectly. (laughs) So... Yeah. Did you, I mean, do you have any background in, in philosophical ethics in terms of I, your... you know, I hate ethics, Very good. actually. That's the full disclosure. So I dreaded teaching it. Um, for a variety of reasons, because it's very hard to teach to undergraduates mm-hmm. because it becomes, um, all first person experience based and opinion based. And then the literature is just really, really tedious, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. I think ethics in general is just tedious. Um, And it's not to say that, you know, that necessarily means I'm an unethical person or I don't care what anybody does. You know, that's not true at all. But but teaching it and writing about it and arguing about it, I find to be just so tedious Um, Mm -hmm. because it's it's really it's never as insightful as something like philosophy of mind where you can actually maybe potentially make headway 
some ideas make more sense than other ideas. Ethics to me just strikes me as one person's opinion versus another person's opinion or one person's religion versus another person's religion. You know, it's just, oh, it's just, I, I don't know. It just, okay. it's, it's never appealed to me at all. But it's funny because a lot of people do equate it with philosophy, right? When they mm. hear that you're a philosopher if you, or you've studied philosophy, you know, then it's like, oh, I love ethics. You know, morals are so interesting or values are so interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's, that is typically what people go to. You're right. Yes. Yeah. But I have to say in the, the Cosby thing, uh, my in-laws were just visiting. They were here for several days. And I basically heard like a peep of that on NPR. And all I know is that all these women are coming forward saying that he was, um, you know, that they were sexually assaulted by him. I don't know any of the details whatsoever. So I'd be interested in hearing what are the ethical conundrums well, that you're, that you're picking up. Historically, so I, I take this from three separate perspectives, none of which are philosophers. The first perspective <laughs> is that within circles of comedians, and I've heard this through listening to other comedians, mm-hmm. Bill Cosby was known as someone who had a woman in every town. And he was known around the comedian circuits as someone who had particular female fans in every town. And this was always like a tongue-in-cheek thing. So when this came out about two months ago from this uh, fellow who was named after the um, guy with the elephants who fought against Rome, whose name escapes me. But anyway, the fellow, the dude with the elephants, this fellow was also named. It wasn't, no, no. Well, what was his name? Anyway. So anyway, the comedian who has the name of the dude with the elephants who fought against Rome. Of course, our listeners know exactly who I'm referring to. Um, he used this. Do you want me to look it up? End of, no, it'll, it'll, it'll be the title of this week's podcast. Okay. Um, and of course, I want to think of this guy's name, but I just can't through this. Uh, Carthaginians was the, the, anyway, his force. Mm. Uh, Hannibal. Oh, Hannibal. So this oh. comedian called Hannibal uh-huh. something. So I know his first name now. Anyway, at the end of his act, he started doing a bit about Bill Cosby, which was already well known in the oh, comedy oh circles, but it wasn't really talked about. And uh-huh. it wasn't talked about for a variety of reasons, but the main one was that Cosby, it was known anyway in these comedy circles, that Cosby paid these various women. In fact, this has come out periodically. It came out in a litigation as well with Cosby uh, more than a decade ago. Uh, paid so, them, you mean like paid them off to be quiet? Well, or? the question, this is where it gets or, interesting. Because uh-huh. historically, when he had a he had a paternity lawsuit just after his son had was killed, his son was, Innes was killed uh, in a, it wasn't even a carjacking, just some lunatic, um, he was helping a woman change her tire and some lunatic shot oh, him. Wow. Uh, oh, wow. And soon after Innes' death, the paternity lawsuit came up and this woman came out. So there's assertions that some of this payoff money may have been to do with paternity lawsuits. This is this historical stuff. The oh. media isn't talking about that as either. There's an interesting phenomenon. So, I mean, Einstein had a number of illegitimate children. There's all the strange things where these men in power just have, like, lots of children. Oh, the kind my of God. Hush, hush like thing. Bob Marley? Bob Marley's got, like, <laughs> dozens of children. Yeah, well, apparently. we don't think of Einstein. There are a few people in history. I like Einstein because the notion of this guy just... <laughs> There being thousands He's of illegitimate Einsteins just out there. Always, He's just but, a little hottie. <laughs> look, it's amazing. It's amazing. What, but How the does thing, he do it? The thing about it with Bill Cosby is the indications initially were, well, although there were some of these drugging cases, mm-hmm. initially it all appeared to be uh, paternity suit related. And what's interesting is there's a 90-year-old television guy who worked with the Cosby show that used to be the bag man, apparently, allegedly, uh, for Cosby and went out and gave money to all these women. So this was already known about within the comedy sphere. And certainly if people had paid any attention to this stuff, they would have known that, you know, Bill Cosby wasn't quite as squeaky clean as he made out of, you know, the Cosby show. He wasn't quite the Huxtable. But (laughs) through this, it appeared that everyone who... the consensuality part was always questionable, but wow. basically the money part wasn't. And these people had accepted in their lives, particularly those that potentially had children, that they were just going to keep getting a certain amount of money for an extended period of time. 
And that's well, certainly um... what the fellow has come out has been. Now, the a number of women have come through who've had contact with lawyers that they've identified, but a majority of them appear not to have had any financial contact with Cosby following this, which just means that there's a far larger group of women out there. The concerns mm. associated with drugging are, I think, probably very real, and it talks about the early stages in the 60s where he was being pretty free with kind of quaaludes and things like that to kind of drug women. But it was very much in wow. the context of, you know, party atmosphere, what have you. I thought you meant he was using drugs. You're saying he was, he was pushing giving, these drugs He was giving on. drugs to women. Oh, my so God. So you have this whole undercurrent. Look, I mean, I think... What a weirdo. This period... Well, my suspicion is, actually, if you look at a number of the cases that got to... Um, the film guy who can't come back to California. Woody Allen? No. <laughs> no. Oh, this is great. This <laughs> oh, is great. Other, other no, film he's, guy? He's, 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 a, he's a Polish Roman Polanski. He, oh, um, yeah. So yeah. It's, this has been a long day, folks, so you're going to get the best of my deterioration of mind here recorded <laughs> for, for benefit. He uh, gives an account as well of just basically a fast and loose giving, I mean, in Polanski's case, wow. the girl was 14. Right. But you see all these kind of hedonistic aspects to these stars' environments. And what's coming through now is a, a combination of women who were starlets and thought that by reporting Cosby it would hurt their career, and other women who God. had sought legal, uh, in, uh, sought some legal attention at the time and just hadn't been able to, you know, the lawyers that they were dealing with wouldn't represent them in some cases. So you have this kind of interesting pattern of stories that are coming through this. And in parallel, Cosby's emphatic denial. Um, he was filmed by the Associated Press with his wife, and he refused to answer any questions. And the Associated Press kept filming him. So after the wow. formal interview, he then said, I cannot answer these questions. I want to contact your boss to make sure that this video footage never gets out. And you should never ask me these questions, and it's not acceptable. I can't talk to these things. Wow. But imagine if, I mean, just to play devil's advocate, imagine if the stories are untrue and, you know, for whatever reason, and the press is approaching him and saying, did you do this? And do you want to comment on this? And did you do that? What a nightmare for well, maybe it's not Bill Cosby, maybe it's somebody else who didn't do those things. And you're you like, now it's out. You, you have know? this interesting part where, um, so there's a fellow called, Rolf Harris, who's like a, nominally an Australian performer who lives in the UK. And he had a similarly squeaky clean reputation. And then it turned out that he had done some things with some underage girls. Actually, mm -hmm. relatively recently, he's now in his 70s. You have this kind of culture where, you know, famous people can kind of get away with slightly more. But what's yeah. interesting here is the question of if you are paid off and you're paid not to talk for a period of time, and then mm -hmm. the payments stop, and then you talk. Yeah. What's the ethical implication through that? And a number of these women seem to have this pattern associated with them. The other thing is That's that the notion of being wronged and parts of being, being criminally, something happening to you criminally, and then having a price associated with that criminality... Yeah. It's very interesting. And also the historical, I mean, now we have a culture where the police, the judiciary, the whole legal process is distrusted. But I yeah. think it's not a modern phenomenon. I think it's historically been distrusted as well, probably even more so than it is currently with regards to these kind of crimes. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, interesting. It almost seems like should there be a statute of limitations? You know, if you are victimized, raped or victimized in I think any there way. Is a statute of limitations associated with rape. I think it's 25 years mm -hmm. from memory. So, 25 years? Yeah. Whoa. That's pretty generous. <laughs> well, it's interesting. It's, it's interesting. like, take your time, think about it. <laughs> it's interesting that you say that because it then begs the question, I mean, there are, there are current cases associated particularly with students in, in colleges getting sexually yeah. assaulted where they take a year to report. And yeah. there's all this questioning associated with the length of time, particularly when you have the involvement of others and all this yeah. stuff. I mean, the whole 
you know, movement into sexuality through the college years and all that kind of stuff is particularly problematic when you have an idealistic kind of religious views and all this other stuff peppered through. But these yeah. are, these women, aside from, I think, a nurse, all appear to have some connection with show business. They're all presented to Cosby mm -hmm. in a connection with them advancing their careers in some way. And wow. through this, the allegations, and then you, it, I mean, it goes it goes both ways in terms of is this a negative, yeah. is this a positive, you know, what is the burden of trust here? But this trial yeah. by media phenomena does, as you've noted, does concern me as well. Uh -huh. Because if if he has agreed with these women and we don't know the nature of the crimes in these interactions that took place, but if they've agreed for an amount of money and they've yeah. received that amount of money, that seems to be a very different position than just someone who was, you know, drugged, sexually abused and woke up naked, you know, next to his road manager or what have you. Um, so you have all these kind of strange <laughs> ebbs and flows. Well, I mean, this, this is what uh, at least a couple of the women have said. Oh, so, really? Yeah. I thought you were just making that up. No, 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 not at all. I'm actually using, oh, I'm mean... actually using elements from the, so yeah, oh. although this, topic has wow. not been people haven't approached me associated with the ethical quandaries here i am yeah uh, within the past week i've been approached about other ethical quandaries and people seem to like talking to me about these things because they think that's what i studied when i did philosophy well i think i mean and it's way more interesting than what you did than you when you studied philosophy it, uh, probably <laughs> because what you talk about in the classroom and in the in you know ethics textbooks um are all very, you know, the, the tedious, well-worn examples of abortion, euthanasia, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. What I'm much more interested in is kind of the issues that you're bringing up, like um, with what's happening in uh, the Michael Brown case mm. in Ferguson or last year with George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin. I follow those cases. That's more like criminal justice, which, of course, ethics comes into all these ethical questions of, you know, does Trayvon Martin's shady background come into play? Mm. Should that be allowed? Mm. Is this a race thing or is it just a rights or a gun rights or a... Yeah. Um, I mean, I, found the, the, I, I find the, the two cases are very distinct in terms of those aspects. Totally. Um, Trayvon totally. Martin, I think, I mean, none of the stuff I saw associated with Trayvon Martin shocked me. I mean, I came from an area where cannabis was decriminalized um, mm -hmm. and was pretty well omnipresent, as we've said previously. So mm -hmm. when they started bringing in, you know, the potential that he could have either had cannabis in his system or was photographed with cannabis in his proximity, I thought that is really aiming for a small margin of the population to try and engage yeah. In. I mean, the real, the unanswered question in that case was who was the instigator? What was the nature of the physical violence? But also, historically, if you've ever been approached by one of these, I didn't quite get into the police force neighborhood watch kind of guys. Yeah. You understand that mentality very clearly. And there's a certain amount of posturing. I mean, if you follow, um, yeah. I mean, I used to DJ quite extensively and I'd spent some time in LA when I was, um, in my early teens and picked huh. up, you know, rap records. And I was predominantly a kind of rap and hip hop DJ in Australia huh. and worked with some groups there. But if you look at the way cool. music has changed within this community, the music huh. that is being portrayed now has very little of the kind of black nationalism elements that I really used to like in the late 80s, mm -hmm. early 90s, and is mm -hmm. now more associated with a hard, but not in terms of knowing yourself and your background, but just uh -huh. that you need to behave in a particular way when you're confronted and you don't back yeah. down. And that yeah. is the difficulty in these circumstances is that you have all these things coming into play. I think in the Trayvon yeah. Martin case, I was considerably more sympathetic to Trayvon Martin than I'm reading about the Ferguson, uh, Missouri case. And I think it's an interesting, oh, interesting, if you look at the history of civil rights in this country, mm -hmm. if you look at the Black Panthers and what happened after the Black Panthers in terms of civil rights, the civil mm -hmm. rights leadership now is so against the history of kind of, uh, you know, elevating communities and bringing communities out of poverty and there's so much more about mm. the kind of soundbite politic that it really is a very, mm. it almost needs, it almost needs new, strong, and there are, there are examples of this, but I just mm -hmm. don't see them in a kind of unified intensity 
as I did with the Black Panthers in particular in the late 60s. The anger that should be focused on the fact that for the first time in history, there's like an African-American establishment in positions of power, and yet this power is not in any way translated to these areas of poverty just mm-hmm. doesn't seem to be a topic that these, whereas these kind of soundbite issues associated yeah. with, you know, kids getting shot, uh, yeah. particularly when there are curious interplays in those interactions, seem to me to be the weakest possible discussion points in a kind of broader conversation associated with civil rights. But you don't hear that talked about at all. Instead, I think there's a phenomena which people talk about outside this country associated with the way the US focuses on, what's the terminology? It's, um, I think the broader terminology is like weak issues that you won't talk, uh, people in this country will not talk about pay, the the minimum wage, you know, things that actually, so abortion becomes this curious issue, which it isn't anywhere else in the world. It becomes this kind of, you know, turning point issue, whereas poverty and the reasons why, you know, it wouldn't be comfortable to bring up children in an environment are not Mm -hmm. actually discussed. Instead, you have these kind of issues. And I think both in the Ferguson case and also uh, in the case in Florida, this strikes me as being so far removed from anything that was historically talked about in in civil rights terms. Yeah, I agree. You I know. agree because it's it's their um their isolated incidents that that people then become reactionary too, right? So yeah. there's all last night it was oh my god there are going to be huge riots in St. Louis and Ferguson and everybody's going to be rioting and there's going to be all this violence and blah 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 over one court case mm-hmm. and it's not that it's not an important case it is but you. I think what you're getting at is there's not this sort of revolutionary movement that everybody's on board with. It's more like reactionary to mm. to discrete current events, like discrete yeah. things that are happening, you know. I mean, if you look at the concerns in the 1960s, particularly associated with the draft and the potential for actual revolution to occur in this country, the FBI under Hoover, and it's well documented, mm-hmm. employed a variety of strategies to completely disarm, discredit, and kill the civil rights leadership that would have enacted change within these communities. The ones who were left, uh, in some description, were accomplices and integrated. In other descriptions, were just extremely inept and lacked a coherency uh, in order to kind of carry through this vision. Um, mm-hmm. It's very strange now that this isn't taught as an example of how, in the case of being forced into wars in countries that are <laughs> curious at best and strangely hard yeah. to describe in Nazi Germany invading England's stance, that uh, yeah. still, you know, young men and women are sent off to fight in these, you know, countries. But I think it's very interesting that um, in reframing this discussion, and I, I have this conversation on and again, off again with Heron, that our responsibility is to reframe these discussions when they occur, mm-hmm. rather than just to kind of delve into what's going on, to actually reframe it in the context of a number of these civil rights leaders who were killed, imprisoned, what have you. Um, yeah. Because oftentimes their visions were considerably more pluralistic and intelligible and related right. to normative things like education, public health. I mean, all the kinds of things that are never talked about in any meaningful sense. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I do feel very strongly that, uh, you know, in the context of these kind of incidents, one has a responsibility to discuss these things. Clearly, the police yeah. and the pseudo-police and all these... There, there's a group in this country that feels that uh, they've had reverse racism enacted against them in some very curious way. What? Uh, and white, white police? Well, I think the... Yes. No, I'm talking about the, like the Zimmerman archetype. I'm talking about the person who feels scared. And it's interesting, actually, because I've moved into a neighbourhood with very little police. In fact, the lowest police of anywhere in the US. 
And oh. we have these kind of competing groups that I frequently, the homeless, for example, um, uh-huh. who, uh, you know, come through and have certain interactions. And my wife is very strongly of the view that when we do see police, they're typically harassing homeless people. And when mm-hmm. I see police out in the general public, they're typically ha- harassing Latino kids, trying to shake them down for bags of weed and things like that. Um, and mm-hmm. it's funny, actually, because we drive through the same neighborhood at the same time, and we see different pockets of policing and talk about it accordingly. But the <laughs> gen- d- traditional or the, the observed response for traditional Americans in these circumstances is to arm themselves and to kind of fortify their communities. <laughs> and my response has been to walk through the community, to talk to people in these environments, and to get a sense of actually organically what's going on with me as an active participant in the broader community. Mm-hmm. And I think that idea is so against what is kind of the conceived norm now. And it's interesting, oh, yeah. actually, because I talked to my co-workers about this, particularly uh, another co-worker lives in not the area that I'm in, but the same county, and has experienced exactly the same problems associated with just complete lack of policing. His view, and he comes from mainland China, is that the government is the source of the solution here, and through various political interactions, this whole thing will eventually be sorted out and the police will come back and everyone will be happy. I don't see that as being a possibility here, but I do see the social responsibility of the community is something that needs to occur. And it's interesting because when I I contacted the police, when various kind of small crimes are committed uh, against me or my property or my area... I've contacted the police and the police mm-hmm. have either hung up on me or it's just said they're not available or more recently advised me to put up security cameras, which is what I've done. But wow. I feel having put up security cameras, I still need to interact with the community in a way where I'm just not some armed nut wandering the streets. And yeah. in contrast to this, I have met a fellow who lives a block over. In fact, he came around and talked to me about increasing my security cameras and beefing everything up. And this guy is, and you, I get this, when I lived in Nevada, people had the right to carry. So you would see people either uh. externally carrying or you'd talk to them and they'd establish that they had concealed carry permit. Mm. And I've often wondered about that whole mentality of being armed in an environment, which is the Zimmerman example. Yeah. You know, is what position will you actually, and what kind of engagement will you have? I mean, particularly if you have a kind of stand, stand your ground mentality versus yeah. a perspective which I've tried to cultivate, which is interacting with a certain degree of respect in these environments and establishing that, you know, people may have reasons to be there. They may be dumping trash illegally into your bins, but, you know, they're still there. They're still, you know, they live a few doors down. You don't necessarily <laughs> want to get into a confrontation with them. Because this basically no. just ruins the community, you know? That's what and I was just so- going to say. I mean, it's it's nice to respect everybody, but respect versus a gun, you're going to lose. So you got to be careful. Certainly. <laughs> and um, I use the statistics associated with gunshot wounds whenever I approach anyone in this neighborhood. <laughs> but uh, one in seven You're folks... making it sound like you live in Beirut, Lebanon or something. Uh, I'm getting know. really curious about your neighborhood. It is a curious neighborhood. I mean, it's a neighborhood on the up and up. I mean, in terms of house sales, it's certainly a neighborhood on the up and up. But You're does, in San Jose, right? Yeah, it does have the largest homeless encampment in the U.S., oh. like literally a mile and a half away. And it's a very real thing. Now, they're saying, oh, yeah, we're bulldozing it. Oh, yeah, we're moving them out. We've seen a f- some indication that they're moving people out. But the nature of actually how, and the state of California is particularly appalling at this, interacting with homeless populations is just really very, you know, very poorly done in California. Um, Mm, Maybe everywhere, you know, uh, because it's it's such a huge problem. We don't know how to tackle it. I think Washington State, in large part inspired by British Columbia, has enacted some pretty good homeless legislation the ability also i think in in manhattan at least to have set up these huge tax breaks privately run homeless shelters seems to combat some of that issue it just doesn't seem to be doing being done effectively in in california and i am genuinely Mm. i mean my experience of it comes through dealing with my you know local environment but it is interesting this notion of 
the kind of white flight, white arming. Yeah. But I mean, my in-laws are are of this mentality. They live out in the middle of a desert. Uh, the guns are at the ready. They, wow. you know, they keep an eye out in their neighborhoods. And they're surrounded by people that think the same way. Wow. Um, which is interesting because you find these, you know, the ability to hold on to these beliefs. I found when I first came here in 2000, a fellow who was a Republican, a member of the NRA, but also belonged to a union and felt hmm. that that was completely coherent. And I think the beauty of coherence with apparent incoherence is one of the things that I really like about the US. I like the ability to have all these kind of tapestries of beliefs. <laughs> <laughs> They're just completely in contrast and like any degree of like analysis I, or I rationality. I actually agree with your, your friend or neighbor. I don't think that's inconsistent at all to be part of a union who is going to represent you in labor issues, but also want to own a gun. That's not inconsistent in my mind. And be a Republican. Yeah. Well, Republicans are all about. I'm going to do what I want to do and leave me alone. If I want to have a gun, I want to have a gun. But right? joining a union. Anyway, historically, I know what you mean. Historically, those two things have been at odds. However, I don't know, probably something happened to him at work that made him want to be represented by or join a union. And meanwhile, he still votes Republican. But again, I was born in New York. I'm one of these Americans you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> We like to pick and choose our politics. Exactly. It's a smorgasbord of beliefs. They don't need to be coherent. It's wonderful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're going to let European seriousness leave that at the, at the, at the docks when you Consistency, schmemisticity. Exactly. Well, Liz, I think we've reached out our mark. The next yeah. few weeks for me are going to be very interesting. I'll try to keep the two week, every, every two weeks thing. We've gotten a lot of really positive feedback. Um, and what oh, I will good. do in this audio is ask people to submit questions and topics because oh, that's good. something that you asked for, but didn't actually make the audio yes. last time. I thought that would be fun. You know, a little audience interaction. Definitely, definitely. And sometime in the next probably three or four recordings, we've got to pick a name. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. I'm, I'm actually very good at naming things. I'm very in the good. process of giving everyone in my new office their rapper hip hop name, which is a lot of fun. Very good. So let me put this on the back burner and come up with something. But it's not going to be applied epistemology, if that's okay. <laughs> no. In fact, Heron stopped listening as soon as he said things against epistemology. So we've got one left listener. <laughs> oh, he did? <laughs> yeah, he was quite warming to you, and then you said that, and he just said, I'm sorry. Wait till he hears I said that I hate ethics, too. I don't think he uh, has any meaningful concerns about ethics, but, um, uh, okay. yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think of a title that'll have something to do with ANU, but um, anyway, we'll, we'll uh, I'll work on that, and you work on the name of the podcast list. Okay, sounds good. Well, you have a great Thanksgiving in Thank a completely you. untraditional way, and Thank I will... Thank uh, you, I will. <laughs> you too. I will have a slightly more traditional Thanksgiving. Okay, well, enjoy it just as well. I'll talk to you in two weeks' time, Liz. Okay, Take care. sounds good. Bye, See Tom. You.